0: Chapter 5, The Dedication. This chapter is based on Luke 2, 21-38. About forty days after the birth of Christ, Joseph and Mary took Him to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord and to offer sacrifice. This was according to the Jewish law, and as man's substitute, Christ must conform to the law in every particular. He had already been subjected to the rite of circumcision as a pledge of his obedience to the law. As an offering for the mother, the law required a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. But the law provided that if the parents were too poor to bring a lamb, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering, might be accepted. The offerings presented to the Lord were to be without blemish. These offerings represented Christ, and from this it is evident that Jesus Himself was free from physical deformity. He was the Lamb without blemish and without spot. 1 Peter 1, verse 19. His physical structure was not marred by any defect his body was strong and healthy, and throughout his lifetime he lived in conformity to nature's laws. Physically as well as spiritually, he was an example of what God designed all humanity to be through obedience to His laws. The dedication of the firstborn had its origin in the earliest times. God had promised to give the firstborn of heaven to save the sinner. This gift was to be acknowledged in every household by the consecration of the firstborn son. He was to be devoted to the priesthood as a representative of Christ among men. In the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, the dedication of the firstborn was again commanded. While the children of Israel were in bondage to the Egyptians, the Lord directed Moses to go to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say, Thus saith the Lord. Israel is my son, even my firstborn, and I say unto thee, let my son go that he may serve me, and if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn Exodus chapter four verses twenty two and twenty three Moses delivered his message, but the proud king's answer was. Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Exodus chapter five, verse two. The Lord worked for His people by signs and wonders, sending terrible judgments upon Pharaoh at length. The destroying angel was bidden to slay the firstborn of man and beast among the Egyptians that the Israelites might be spared, they were directed to place upon their doorposts the blood of a slain lamb. Every house was to be marked, that when the angel came on his mission of death, he might pass over the homes of the Israelites. After sending this judgment upon Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn, both of man and of beast. It is mine. For on the day that I smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I hallowed unto me all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. Mine shall they be. I am the Lord. Exodus chapter 13, verse 2, and Numbers chapter 3, verse 13. After the tabernacle service was established, the Lord chose the tribe of Levi in the place of the firstborn of all Israel, to minister in the sanctuary. But the firstborn were still to be regarded as the Lord's, and were to be bought back by a ransom. Thus the law for the presentation of the firstborn was made particularly significant. While it was a memorial of the Lord's wonderful deliverance of the children of Israel, it prefigured a greater deliverance to be wrought out by the only begotten Son of God. As the blood, sprinkled on the doorpost, had saved the firstborn of Israel, so the blood of Christ has power to save the world. What meaning, then, was attached to Christ's presentation? But the priest did not see through the veil. He did not read the mystery beyond. The presentation of infants was a common scene. Day after day the priest received the redemption money, as the babes were presented to the Lord. Day after day he went through the routine of his work, giving little heed to the parents or children, unless he saw some indication of the wealth, or high rank of the parents. Joseph and Mary were poor, and when they came with their child, the priest saw only a man and woman, dressed as Galileans, and in the umblest garments. There was nothing in their appearance to attract attention and they presented only the offering made by the poor classes. The priest went through the ceremony of his official work. He took the child in his arms, held it up before the altar. After handing it back to its mother, he inscribed the name Jesus on the roll of the firstborn. Little did he think, as the babe lay in his arms, that it was the Majesty of heaven, the King of glory. The priest did not think that this babe was the one whom Moses had written, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. Acts chapter 3 verse 22. He did not think that this babe was he whose glory Moses had asked to see. But one greater than Moses lay in the priest's arms. And when he enrolled the child's name, He was enrolling the name of one who was the foundation of the whole Jewish economy. That name was to be its death warrant. For the system of sacrifices and offerings was waxing old. The type had almost reached its antitype, the shadow its substance. The Shekinah had departed from the sanctuary, but in the child of Bethlehem was veiled the glory before which angels bow. This unconscious babe was the promised seed to whom the first altar at the gate of Eden pointed. This was Shiloh, the peace giver. It was He who declared Himself to Moses as the I AM. It was He who in the pillar of cloud, of fire, had been the guide of Israel. This was He whom seers had long foretold. He was the desire of all nations, the root and the offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. The name of that helpless little babe, inscribed in the rule of Israel, declaring Him our brother, was the hope of fallen humanity. The child for whom the redemption money had been paid was He who was to pay the ransom for the sins of the whole world. He was the true High Priest over the house of God, the head of an unchangeable priesthood, the intercessor at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 21, Hebrews chapter. 10. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. In the temple the Son of God was dedicated to the work He had come to do. The priest looked upon Him as He would upon any other child. But though he neither saw nor felt anything unusual, God's act in giving His Son to the world was acknowledged. This occasion did not pass without some recognition of Christ. There was a man in Jerusalem, whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost, that he should not see death, before he had seen the Lord's Christ. As Simeon enters the temple, he sees a family presenting their firstborn son before the priest. Their appearance bespeaks poverty. But Simeon understands the warnings of the Spirit, and he is deeply impressed that the infant being presented to the Lord is the consolation of Israel, the one he has longed to see. To the astonished priest Simeon appears like a man enraptured. The child has been returned to Mary, and he takes it in his arms and presents it to God, while a joy that he has never before felt enters his soul. As he lifts the infant Savior toward heaven, he says, Lord, now let us Thou Thy servant depart in peace, according to Thy word. For mine eyes have seen Thy salvation, which Thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of Thy people Israel. The spirit of prophecy was upon this man of God. And while Joseph and Mary stood by, wondering at his words, he blessed them, And said unto Mary, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed." Anna also, a prophetess, came in and confirmed Simeon's testimony concerning Christ. As Simeon spoke, her face lighted up with the glory of God, and she poured out her heartfelt thanks that she had been permitted to behold Christ the Lord. These humble worshippers had not studied the prophecies in vain. But those who held positions as rulers and priests in Israel, though they too had before them the precious utterances of prophecy, were not walking in the way of the Lord their eyes were not open to behold the light of life. So it is still. Events upon which the attention of all heaven is centered are undiscerned. Their very occurrence is unnoticed by religious leaders and worshippers in the house of God. Men acknowledge Christ in history, while they turn away from the living Christ. Christ in His Word calling to self-sacrifice, in the poor and suffering who plead for relief, in the righteous cause that involves poverty and toil and reproach is no more readily received today than he was eighteen hundred years ago. Mary pondered the broad and far-reaching prophecy of Simeon. As she looked upon the child in her arms, and recalled the words spoken by the shepherds of Bethlehem, she was full of grateful joy and bright hope. Simeon's words called to her mind the prophetic utterances of Isaiah. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. And righteousness shall be the girdle of His loins, and faithfulness the girdle of His reins. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 5 and Isaiah chapter 9 verses 2 through 6. Yet Mary did not understand Christ's mission. Simeon had prophesied of him as a light to lighten the Gentiles as well as a glory to Israel. Thus the angels had announced the Savior's birth as tidings of joy to all peoples. God was seeking to correct the narrow Jewish conception of the Messiah's work. He desired men to behold Him not merely as the deliverer of Israel, but as the Redeemer of the world. But many years must pass before even the mother of Jesus would understand His mission. Mary looked forward to the Messiah's reign on David's throne, but she saw not the baptism of suffering, by which it must be won. Through Simeon it is revealed that the Messiah is to have no unobstructive passage through the world. In the words to Mary, A sword shall pierce through thy own soul also. God, in His tender mercy, gives to the mother of Jesus an intimation of the anguish that already for His sake she had begun to bear. Behold, Simeon had said, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. They must fall who would rise again. We must fall upon the rock and be broken before we can be uplifted in Christ. Self must be dethroned. Pride must be humbled, if we would know the glory of the spiritual kingdom. The Jews would not accept the honor that is reached through humiliation. Therefore they would not receive their Redeemer. He was a sign that was spoken against. That the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed, in the light of the Saviour's life, the hearts of all, even from the Creator to the Prince of darkness, are revealed. Satan has represented God as selfish and oppressive, as claiming all and giving nothing, as requiring the service of his creatures for his own glory, and making no sacrifice for their good. But the gift of Christ reveals the Father's heart. It testifies that the thoughts of God toward us our thoughts of peace and not of evil." Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. It declares that while God's hatred of sin is as strong as death, His love for the sinner is stronger than death. Having undertaken our redemption, He will spare nothing, however dear, which is necessary to the completion of His work. No truth essential to our salvation is withheld, no miracle of mercy is neglected, no divine agency is left unemployed. Favor is heaped upon favor, gift upon gift. The whole treasury of heaven is open to those He seeks to save. Having collected the riches of the universe, and laid open the resources of infinite power, He gives them all, into the hands of Christ, and says, All these are for man. Use these gifts to convince him that there is no love greater than mine in the earth or heaven. His greatest happiness will be found in loving me. At the cross of Calvary love and selfishness stood face to face. Here was their crowning manifestation. Christ had lived only to comfort and bless, and in putting him to death, Satan manifested the malignity of his hatred against God. He made it evident that the real purpose of his rebellion was to dethrone God and to destroy him through whom the love of God was shown. By the life and the death of Christ, the thoughts of men also are brought to view. From the manger to the cross, The life of Jesus was a call to self-surrender, and to fellowship in suffering. It unveiled the purposes of men. Jesus came with the truth of heaven, and all who were listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit were drawn to Him. The worshippers of self belonged to Satan's kingdom. In their attitude toward Christ, all would show on which side they stood, and thus everyone passes judgment on himself. In the day of final judgment every lost soul will understand the nature of his own rejection of truth. The cross will be presented, and its real bearing will be seen by every mind that has been blinded by transgression. Before the vision of Calvary with its mysterious victim, sinners will stand condemned. Every lying excuse will be swept away. Human apostasy will appear in its heinous character men will see what their choice has been. Every question of truth and error in the long-standing controversy will then have been made plain. In the judgment of the universe God will stand clear of blame for the existence or continuance of evil. It will be demonstrated that the divine decrees are not accessory to sin. There was no defect in God's government, no cause for disaffection when the thoughts of all hearts shall be revealed, both the loyal and the rebellious will unite in declaring, Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thy judgments are made manifest.